The history of the world is a sequence of empires. They are born, they evolve, and then they die. Where do we go from here? Life after empire, empire. Life doesn't die. Hello and welcome to another episode of Life After Empire. Today we're talking with Alberto Toscano, professor of critical theory in the Department of Sociology and co-director of the Center for Philosophy and Critical Thought in Goldsmith University, London, and associate visiting professor in the School of Communications at Simon Fraser, Vancouver. Alberto is well known as both a translator and author. In fact, just last year he published two books and collaborated on an edited volume of translations of Georges Bataille. Uh, today we're sitting down to talk about one of those books from last year. It's called Late Fascism, Race, Capitalism, and the Politics of Crisis. Alberto, welcome to Life After Empire. Thanks for having me. So first of all, I just want to know what your relationship is like with writing, because you've been working uh, at a breakneck pace here, publishing multiple books a year in multiple languages. I'm seeing stuff in English, Spanish, Japanese, uh, writing for academic journals, publishing in the popular press. It's a lot. So uh, I'm curious what motivates you to be constantly producing new work? Maybe since 2010 or so, I've found it increasingly yeah, necessary and significant to try to link my writing and my theoretical reflections uh, more and more closely with the response to not just current events in a in an immediate and kind of empiricist sense, but I suppose what I you know feel to be significant tendencies and trends both in our social reality and, and in our discourse. So that's a little bit how I guess since um, I wrote the book uh, Fanaticism, which was really in, in the context of of mobilization in response to the uh, invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan and the anti-war movement of the mid two thousands. Everything I've most of the things that I've written since then has taken that form, which in some sense is I think also explains perhaps a different speed and 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 volume of writing as well, right? Uh, I'm not in the archives doing field research. And so there's also less constraint. It's a form of essayistic and reflexive writing where I don't have to spend 10 years in, um, in, in the archives to produce a book, right? You know, for better and for worse. Um, <laughs> I've got a question about something that you mentioned there. So you, you mentioned uh, writing about fanaticism in the aftermath of the Iraq war. I, I've I've started calling it Iraq too. I don't, uh, but one thing that's been strange to me is that when the invasion of Ukraine happened, I was surprised by the quickness with which people adopted the official talking points and frames being used by the U.S. government regarding that conflict and why it was happening and whatever. Anything that was a counterpoint to that was automatically discredited as a Putin bot or agent, even when discussing Iraq and like what that was, what the force composition of the U.S. is currently, its weakness in the aftermath of that disaster. Like why? It's not just about 
the lies that happened there, but just like the lessons of what is the nature of U.S. power. That was significantly altered by that conflict, at least in my eyes, because I was um, very openly anti-war in a conservative area that was pro-war, right? But even over time, they had to change their tune. But I haven't seen continuity from the lessons learned or the the reckoning that happens there with like how people understand what's happening now. And I wonder, as someone who's been writing about these issues and very popular movements and revanchism, fashion, whatever we want to call it, what kinds of themes have you seen emerge with from these major shocks to legitimacy? Let's say the Iraq war, the financial collapse. Um, there have been these shocks of legitimacy. People have reacted in all kinds of ways. Some, And it seems like the most dynamic reactions right now it, in this moment are happening on the right or among reactionaries. They're the ones that are taking the initiative on these questions right now in ways that have kind of like taken the momentum from progressive forces who have been kind of, I think, since the Biden election, absorbed back into cont containment kinds of functions that have kind of poured cold water on the thing. So what's your reflection on this last 20 years, especially, or the post 9-11 thing? As someone who that's clearly been a theme in the things that you're writing, what, how, how do you make sense of all of this change, crisis of legitimacy, and like who's learning what lessons and how are they being applied would be kind of mm. how I would frame mm. that very huge question. Yeah, well... <laughs> The, the task of totalization is always a, a tricky one. Uh, so one of the things that I suppose is most striking, bewildering, frustrating about the present moment suggested by, by your question, right, is the not learning of lessons, the not even remembering the classes in which those lessons were learned, and so on and so forth, that's governing much of our present moment. I think... One of the reasons for that is that the forms of collective critical or anti-systemic intelligence that, you know, nourish and maintain and reproduce and refine political thought are not strong or that present so that we aren't in counter hegemonic public spheres, parties or institutions or whatever that are able to maintain those political analyses. So there's there's a kind of constant and if one's gone through various uh, of these moments, very frustrating reinventing of the wheel or being shocked and surprised at things that nobody should be shocked and surprised about. So I think Let's say we take those two decades from 2001, and we think of the sequence of the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, and then we think of the financial crisis of 2007-8, and then we think of uh, the Arab Spring and Occupy and all of those uh, movements, and you know, and 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 we add. Uh, all of the more you know recent developments, including the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, the onslaught on Gaza, right? If we think of that sequence, we we can also say how or you know already like the financial crisis is something that was very quickly forgotten. Of course, the impact on people has remained and the devastations have remained, but you know very quickly there's a kind of materially produced amnesia, you know, Wall Street's doing well, the economy is buoyant, unemployment is low, you know, that kind of rhetoric, which of course is often extremely uh, superficial. The movements of 
2011 in their buoyance and ephemerality have not necessarily led to a kind of metabolization of political lessons and so on and so forth. And therefore, we, we also then find ourselves in the context of the invasion of Ukraine without the political or, or discursive organs to respond in a way that could combine a lucid estimation of the expansionist, oligarchic, and fascistic dimensions of the Putin regime with a historical and sober analysis of the disaster that NATO expansion has been for Eastern Europe and much of the world, right? And there's a, instead, what we have is a kind of reflex Cold War liberalism that still remains uh, remarkably durable if posthumous or zombie formation, right? All of the critiques of the discourse of humanitarian intervention, all of the critiques of what, you know, that had, you know, that uh, even before Iraq too, so to speak, already in terms of, say, the the bombing of Serbia in the context of the Kosovo War, all of that, you know, that was part of the common discourse of a critical left. Um, all of that seems to have been very marginalized, dampened down. And one of the things that has happened, I think in the US intensely, but also in other contexts, has been a kind of re-territorialization and nationalization of even radical or critical political discourse, right? So that critiques of imperialism, geopolitical analyses, a sense of the, the dialectic, the often baleful dialectic between the uh, internal politics and the external politics is not really dealt with, right? Um, and, and when you don't have that analysis, of course, then the default is a kind of moralism, for want of a better word, which is not a particularly effective compass for one's political judgments. So that then you're stuck at the level of, uh, yeah, moralism, which is also a kind of legalism of sorts, right? So you can, you know, of course, one can denounce and condemn and so on and so forth. But there's no sense of the historical context or the or the or the forms of power, right, that that underlie these conflicts. And so you one is one is kind of captured, right, by, you know, by the discourse of a of a Biden or of a kind of, you know, centrist uh, liberalism, one is always playing on their turf, if one remains at the level of a pseudo anti imperialist moralism, right, where, where you just simply have the moral reaction, but you don't have any of the analysis, right? Would you consider, would you apply that to the Palestinian situation right now? In terms of, when I hear moralism and legalism, as you've deployed the terms, mm -hmm. what they mean to me in that context is the demand for a ceasefire, for example, which is framed in terms of these legalistic arguments around war crimes, around just things that people don't really understand, but think and maybe think are tools of, opposing imperialism, but are actually the the rules through which imperialism is self-governing in in a in like a practical sense, setting aside whatever practical relief they using them may provide in in an immediate sense. I don't want to totally discredit that, right? But as far as building the movements or doing what you're talking about, you have the moral outrage, of, which is to me implicit in the the urgency that people feel in using the term genocide to describe what's happening, which may or may not be. I feel like it's a moral claim more than that has a relation to a certain legal principle. 
And it's that nexus that makes it irresistible for some people. Like they are, to your point, caught in that moral legalistic nexus and can't figure out, well, what would it mean to actually carry out a politic of international solidarity that opposed, that seized the day and ended this? Like that, that conversation actually can't happen in part because many of those conversations are objectively illegal. Mm. Like uh, mm. the, the, the people that you would have to talk to in Palestine, that it's illegal mm. to mm-hmm. coordinate mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. So you, so the, the ways in which that moralism and legalism is structured by the imperial process itself has kind of foreclosed people's ability to actually do a different politic. Mm-hmm. But th- that's kind of my rough assessment. Mm-hmm. But how mm-hmm. would you apply those concepts to that situation? I know you've written an essay on this issue relatively recently. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want to bounce it back to some yeah. of the things that you said in that, but I thought that those two terms that you just used in particular in as part of this analysis, I think it's worth exploring what we mean by, or what you mean by that. I think, th- yeah, this is an, it's extremely tricky, both as a discursive and a kind of tactical and strategic question, right? Especially from positions of weakness, just at the level of material forces, you know? like the old, uh, the infamous uh, Stalin quip, how many divisions does the Pope have, you know? Uh, So the legal terrain, the terrain of the the, the largely symbolic terrain of international law, symbolic in the sense of that when the relations of power are not there, then the implementation is in either, as we've seen, you know, continuing carnage after the ICJ provisional measures, which have not only not been implemented, but have, you know, been entirely uh, flouted by Israel, right? So that said, symbolic politics is also very significant. And delegitimation is very significant. And um, the organizing of, of, of kind of a ideological and discursive consensus around certain political position is also a precondition, right, of building certain solidarities. But, but, um, there's also a very fine line, and there's a. It's very easy to be reabsorbed into a discourse onto a position that is not only moralistic and legalistic, or at least kind of caught in a sort of you know juridical illusion, right, or juridical ideology. But I think that is also very much related to the absence of power, right? The position, the moral position, and the juridical position is a one of asking another authority and therefore another power to carry out a mission that is viewed as humanistic or humanitarian or what have you, right? And then once that power isn't there, because after all, we have the U.S. veto in the Security Council or what have you, then uh, there's just a sort of impasse, right? And this is why I also think it's very telling that from the standpoint of uh, many Palestinians themselves or people also involved in Palestine solidarity, it's uh, there's an effort, right, to undermine or undo that simply liberal moralistic capture by saying, you know, by 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 very clearly presenting the ceasefire just simply as a as an urgency that doesn't in any way resolve the question of decolonization and freedom and a total transformation of the political order in that territory, right? So. To return to the um, to the original problem, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's kind of inevitable 
to play on these terrains, they cannot be bypassed, they cannot be avoided. And after all, even the most uh, well-organized and, and, and revolutionary movements of the second half of the 20th century, it's not like they disregarded, right? The terrains of international law or of uh, even of, uh, of, of moral exhortation, right? Or calls to, to justice and et cetera, et cetera. It's just a matter. It's the matter of articulation, right? You know, what is the relationship between that and and an actual sort of political movements? And I think that that is a very uh, is a very steep uh, hill to climb right now. Also, because many of the organizations or movements that would be a point of reference are not constituted in an easily legible international space of political solidarities and, and shared projects, right? I remember the time of the first, not the first, the second or <laughs> the first I was myself around around 15. In fact, I think 13. It was the first demonstration that I went to. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. So clear, clear memory of Gulf War One. Um, I'm interested in this, um, this thinking about that time period. Uh, I mean, when you were around that age, the mm -hmm. um, like the USSR is crumbling right like this is this is that time period and there's um there's all this kind of institutional apparatus there which was involved in its own um issues of uh, apparent competition and in fact kind of collusion between the ussr and the u.s in terms of maintaining the existing kind of world capitalist system in certain ways but providing some of these institutional spaces and counterpowers that provided this kind of leverage. I'm, I'm interested in this and, and your experience during that time. And just thinking about this kind of, this period of history after, mm. I mean, after 91, there's this big forgetting, like we were talking about before, like, and, and a sense that we had to just throw everything in the past and start over and like start from scratch um I'm curious about that time period and how how you went through that time period as kind of like a, a budding marxist intellectual <laughs> during the fall of you know who, who was born in the ussr i take it right that is correct yes yes uh my my father was uh posted there as mm. uh italian diplomat so that's the reason for my Soviet birth. Um, yeah, born in the USSR and with a Soviet nanny who had driven ambulance trucks during the Great Patriotic War, and I think engaged in some serious indoctrination before the age of three, because at least from my childhood drawings of you know tanks and swastikas and you know victorious Soviet soldiers, yeah. So that that's probably that's probably lasted a long time. In any case. <laughs> Um, I think one of the things that I've, I, you know, if I had, I mean, I have a number of self-criticisms about the, um, about the fascism book, never, notwithstanding the fact that it's only been out for three months, but, you know, it took, it took a little while to write and think about, but, you know, one of the things that I, I feel, you know, maybe especially in light of both the, the war in Ukraine and the war on Gaza, is the question of how we um, reflect on and contend with that amnesia, right, about the Cold War. 
uh, on the one hand, of course, we have, um, especially in the in the person of of Biden, right, <laughs> in the, in in the not just the um, the you know gerontocratic uh, nature of it, but also just in the massive nostalgia, right, for for. Uh, uh, belligerent cold war liberalism that nevertheless always feels morally justified for all of its actions including the more nefarious ones right so we have that very present we have the ways in which i think uh and it, it was evident in the response of certain prominent you know ivy league academics and and, and intellectuals or whatever we have the ease with which people take that posture right vis-a-vis -vis russia with the memories of the soviet union right evil empire etc cetera, etc cetera. so there are all of these reflexes but they were not exactly like worked through or reflected upon and so on but then we also have a strange phenomenon i think and i and again i probably uh, suffer from this myself too to some extent because it's a symptom of our age is that we think of different moments in the past including for instance the past of um israeli colonization and and of the res palestinian resistance etc and it kind of kind of bracketing out <laughs> that geopolitical context right recently i read a book that is a book from the 70s but that was translated and i think published last year which is a book by um Israeli journalist that Verso published on the uh, 73 war called not not without a mission or something like that um Amnon Kapaliuk it's uh it's a really interesting book one of the things that is very striking of course is how much the US government's interventions into Israeli military and other decisions were in that context right and so you have these moments in a war which you know was by no means as murderous it was really a war with armies rather than you know a slaughter of civilians for the most part but nevertheless because of the context the soviet support partial and arming of egypt and you know the the, the entire geopolitical game uh, around west asia that the u.s could at certain points right it intervened very effectively to shape Israeli actions. So, you know, you have Kissinger intervening and, you know, basically saying, well, unless you guys do this by tomorrow, then the planes stop arriving, right? And again, in a situation which is, you know, at the, let's say at the moral level, <laughs> or even at the level of international law and war crimes and genocide, etc., by no means as grave, but that the U.S. has that leverage, or you can think of even the responses. Um, you know, this is obviously in the context of Israeli militarism being entirely supported by the U.S., but nevertheless, right, like that, that leeway, that bandwidth, you know, which you also see in certain moments, even in, in 82 with Lebanon, etc. And even more vocal criticisms, right, by, um, by the likes of uh, Reagan or then Bush that you would ever get from, from, from Biden or Blinken or that lot. So I think that con you know not not keeping that context in in mind creates a very strange a sort of dream history of of that of that past right so I think that's yeah I think that's significant to keep in mind of course it's very you know it's very difficult um you know one thing is 
revising our historical understanding or keeping that in mind. Another one is is what does that mean politically, right? What what does it mean in terms of our own moves and movements and so on and so forth? And I think that's that's much less clear, right? Um, there's a there's an enormous danger of all sorts of very mechanical nostalgias or uh, desires to repeat certain anachronistic forms of organization or thought and you know even terms that we might remain very much wedded to symbolically politically and otherwise third worldism internationalism anti-colonialism etc obviously have a totally different and at times rather threadbare complexion present in the material reality of political movements right um and i think that's uh yeah that's a that's a that's a tricky predicament so so what tools do you use to ideologically like to to mix into yeah you're describing some of the ways in which these things have uh, a sort of distance from uh popular understanding and action so what kinds of tools do you think would be appropriate in to to help orient people now and what tools do you use in your mm -hmm. work well i suppose you know critical work critical work on contemporary ideological formations both of the center and of the far right and the interrelations between them etc i don't think it's necessarily easy per se but nevertheless, it's a very different demand, right, than the effort to reconstruct languages and, and, and perspectives for affirmative projects of, of social transformation, right? Of course, the two things are interlinked and thinking about the world you want to make and who you want to make it with um, and thinking about how to unmake the one that you're in are obviously interrelated projects but i think the critical project was that it relies on a lot of collective thought and communication and analysis can be done to a certain extent on one's own <laughs> or at least can be done outside of right the kind of organizations or practices that would be a test that would serve to like corroborate or or falsify your intuitions right and and i'm not in those i mean you know uh in in well, in, in situations where that can... that practice you know that practice of of proposal hypothesis like material right like does this yeah. work does this get us anywhere etc so so i can i can look at those uh, uh you know at, at certain movements and practices but i'm not in them and so in that sense i i also have yeah, I also, and this relates very much to the question, I think I've increasingly felt less sanguine, less attracted by a political philosophical tendency to just speculate, like, what should communism look like or what have you, right? Like, I, I you know, in, in, in some way, I don't know if it's the bleakness of the present or 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 the lack of an immediate organizational reference for that, at least for me. Uh, but I don't I don't find much um, much to gain in that. So basically, I I, I do what I feel I can do uh, best, which is in some sense more the you know as they say in, in Latin, it's the 
the paths destruents, right? Like the destructive part rather than the constructive part of the work of of critique. I guess to follow up on that, to and to make yeah. it a little more concrete, what I'm getting at. So within our project, we engaged in a long-running discussion of fascism and the and the ideolo- like the the ideological orientation to that question has been like that's where the the action has been because broadly speaking, like we're like yeah, fascism's bad, <laughs> but what what has it meant historically? What are the proper ideological orientations to its various constitutive elements? What and how does that translate to today? Should like these are the to to give we, we so uh, we. Rob, like one of the questions of ideology and our attitudes towards and, and our analysis of fascism that has that you've attended to is its mass character. And that's something that um, comes up in in the book in late fascism, right? Is this debate over is there a mass character mm-hmm. uh, to fascism? And if so, what does that look like? And what does that mean strategically versus if there is not so much of this mass character and it is um you know, the the most revanchist, et cetera, elements of the financial bourgeoisie than the Dimitrov line. Right, right. So if mm-hmm. if that is our understanding of fascism, what does that mean strategically? So these so diagnosing mm-hmm. that mass character would be one way of intervening in the question of ideology that allows us to orient our movements more or less effectively towards the character of our struggle. Is that what you're getting towards? Yeah. And and I think one of the tensions we've had is I'm less on the mass character line of it within our group slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I would characterize the discussion as such. Like we read um, one of our colleagues, he, he uh, really liked the Jay Sakai um, shock of recognition. Right. And I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with that piece, but he was, he, for him, that defined the mass character aspect of the discussion. And but for me, while some of the points that it's making uh, uh, around uh, the general sentiment that gives rise to fascist leadership, the, how it's able to consolidate among general peoples, and like that that process historically happened first before you know whatever, whatever those arguments are is one thing. But I also had a geopolitical understanding of the context and the various nation states, like the role of Britain in Italy leading up to like in Mussolini's rise, like the what was happening geostrategically, what what Britain, even just these imperial questions, which was really what this was about. I, I'm of the opinion that that period is a continuation of the World War One European colonial fight that had been happening around German hegemony within a system or the U.S. or what. Like, there's a lot happening structurally that's giving rise to this stuff. And I don't think that can be totally cast aside to say, like, well, some guys who were middle class didn't have jobs, really, or like, you know, so then they decided to try to take over the world. Like, I don't. I think that's a little silly. So, so, mm-hmm. but, but I do think Dimitrov's line is wrong. And part of what we've been discussing is why is it wrong ideologically? So in our most recent synthesis, part of what we've been saying is the, the, the idea that it's the most revanchist or the most reactionary um, segments of the bourgeoisie distorts the, the, the role that liberalism plays within the emergence of fascism at a, a practical political level as well as historically. And it it discredits or or 
puts down its mass character aspect. So like that, I think is kind of where we've rested with it. But I think like mm-hmm. it was a fruitful discussion for a while at the ideological level, of course, which had implications for like what we wanted to see done or how we, what we wanted to be. But now it's like, how relevant is this right now to talk about? And, uh, and mm. especially because so much of it is for me, a specific historical conjuncture when people are using this term, it's important to understand that moment and those forces. And yeah, there are things that extend beyond it that you can use analytically, but like, don't forget that this happened in the, in the teen, late teens or twenties, thirties, like this, this is a very specific thing. And I think you're, some of what I've read of what you've looked at in terms of, uh, some of your phrasing around, um, was it petty, uh, or in the petty sovereignty? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Petty sovereignty, the the nature of capricious authority that mm-hmm. can be expressed through uh, interpersonally among the mm-hmm. masses of people, what it engenders. We're seeing a lot of that between mm-hmm. men and women. We're seeing mm-hmm. a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of racialism I- emerge. So for me, it's like the question I would have for you, given this long preamble, mm-hmm. the question, <laughs> the question that I really have is twofold. One how do you ideologically make sense of like, what are the tools, you know, like I'm kind of giving you some of Mm -hmm. the ideological orientation things that we're playing with. So what, what, how do, what, what levels or what tools are you playing with in trying to make sense of this through your work? And then number two, in terms of what's happening right now, how do you draw a line between the general trends of racialism uh, patriarchal authority, especially attached to this petty sovereignty thing that mm-hmm. I think is very attractive to people. If you turn on Instagram or whatever, people are on this hard, especially when it comes to um, patriarchal authority and whatnot. But like you, you're seeing just a general turn towards racialism. Also, take for example this fentanyl act that they're trying to get passed. Right, fentanyl is obviously a big problem. You know, 75, however many thousands of people are dying in the United States every year. The bill is about targeting cartels, and it specifically mentions Mexico and China. But there's nothing here about the demand in the United States for these mm-hmm. drugs. Like, people mm-hmm. en masse want to die. Like, it's not it, – people know – like, it's it's actually really bad. Or they've had doctors – force these things onto them. There's a whole structure Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of creating the demand for this, whether it's through untreated mental traumas or whatever, like that's causing people to want to just check out of society, you know? Like there's a, none of that is addressed, but you get these racialized shorthands of, oh, it's the Mm -hmm. Mexicans and Mm -hmm. the Chinese, and which has always been how the U.S. has handled drugs. That's how we got drug law in the first place. And mm-hmm. so it's so Rob, is your question about linking up the micro? Well, and the it's macro about these are general of... these are general trends. I don't think that bill is fascism. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so how useful is it today? So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. Mm-hmm. You have your historical ideological arguments about what how to orient to that historically. But then you have the slippage that exists now where every single bad thing is being swept up in this fascism discussion. And mm-hmm. I don't know how useful that in fact is when you have the racialism, you have the petty sovereignty, as you put it, that these are, I think, functions of a system in terminal crisis that's creating the pockets for this stuff to be being mm-hmm. expressed mm-hmm. that may or may not be quote unquote fascism, but like, you know, so what's the point? It's kind of, yeah. it's kind of my, my question. Yeah. I mean, 
so on the one hand, I'm very wary of the definitional um, imperative, you know, that we that we come up with uh, uh, an, an almost kind of transhistorical typology or or a set of fascist minima or what have you, right? Um, at the same time, uh, and then this maybe resonates with what you were um, just saying, Rob, um, at the same time, as I think there's nothing to be gained from just banding the term about uh, with full abandon uh, to refer to, you know, uh, any and all kind of uh, noxious or morbid phenomenon that are present, right? Um, and vis-a-vis... Um, what Tyler just said, I, I do think that question of, of the macro and the micro is is significant, right? So let's let's say we we start from thinking about fascism, obviously in relation to this whole archive of often very conjunctural and sometimes ephemeral theories of it from the past hundred years, uh, and we try to think of the ways in which capitalist rule is uh, secured and advanced in moments of crisis through a reinvention right of practices and ideologies of organized violence and through a reinvention of uh forms of if not mass mobilization at least kind of mass interpolation or or incorporation into uh projects of 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 hierarchy and and, and continued exploitation or something like that right so just very 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 kind of kind of loose uh, at least orientation, kind of horizon through which to to think, right? And you know, just in the past few days, one of the things which I don't talk about in the book, but I've been kind of struck by, is thinking about the way in which the notion of fascism travels through a bunch of um, thinkers uh, in basically economists, right, who come across this question of fascism in their own work. So I deal a little bit. Uh, I mean, he's a he's a heterodox figure. Uh, and, and Sonretel. Yeah, the deal with Sonretel. I, I deal with with Karl Polanyi, who in fact is gets one of the epigrams of the book. But more recently, I was uh, looking at a debate from 1952-53 in the pages of Monthly Review between uh, Paul Baran writing under a pseudonym Historicus and 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 somebody else writing under a pseudonym who I still haven't found out who it is. Uh, a certain Robert Porter, but not a real person. Um, where this debate uh, takes place, right? Where Baran is basically saying in an article called Fascism in America or something along those lines, you know, there are, um, there is a recombination, right? There's a, there's a transformation of this fundamental question of violently securing capitalist rule, which is taking place in a very different uh, context. Uh, and, and the discussion, unsurprisingly, from the pages of Monthly Review is very much linked to the integration of uh, big government, big business, and and the big brass or the military, right? And and that, that kind of military-industrial complex discussion as a way of thinking the reconfigurations of a fascism that is not called by that name and does not call itself by that name, not least because it presents itself as the vanquisher of actually existing European interwar fascisms, right? Um, and and you have this uh, this debate about the the elasticity, right, of the concept where um, uh, Baran's interlocutor says, well, you know, 
But that's just what capitalist ruling classes do, right? <laughs> is is violently secure their rule, right? And so that you know, there's this kind of debate as to you know the 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 the, the how how much the concept can be stretched. And then just a few years later, uh, in the con in in '64, right? So in the wake of the the Kennedy assassination, but actually more importantly. Uh, in the wake of uh, the Goldwater presidential candidacy, the Polish um, Marxian economist, uh, Michael Kalecki, writes a very interesting piece called uh, Fascism in Our Time, uh, reflecting on what does it mean when you have a fascism that no longer incorporates what he calls, using the terminology of the time, social demagogy, right? So the sense of a fascism that presents itself as a harbinger of full employment or heightened welfare benefits, et cetera. He says, well, you know, this is, you know, and then he tries to analyze, you know, what fractions of U.S. capital would be um, attracted, right, by the Goldwater proposition and why. And then he returns to these themes in 67 in the context of the Vietnam, the, the, the escalation of the Vietnam War, and then looks in quite some detail, right, about the the, the different fractions of capital as they relate to the military industries and that as they relate to the political complexion of the U.S. scene, right? And then you can even look a little further when, you know, a totally mainstream, if, you know, uh, in, in his own way, very moderately Keynesian economist like Paul Samuelson writes about, uh, you know, keeps revising his economics textbook and in the 1980 version, uh, having in the 48 version said that fascism was something opposite to or antithetical to capitalism in 1980 responding to the developments in chile and an obvious polemic with uh, uh you know his former right. former classmate right at the or or kind of uh, um contemporary of the university of chicago friedman writes about market fascism capitalist fascism and what he calls as an imposed capitalism right so you have all of the and i think it's quite interesting to to see just within the discipline of economics these flashpoints where where there's a there's an effort or a demand to think about political mechanisms for the securing imposition acceleration or furthering right and those debates are also taking place very much in Latin America where Latin American Marxists in the 70s Again, something I deal with in an essay that I wrote after the book. It's hopefully coming out soon, but it's not in the book. You know, they have this debate precisely around this, right? Like, what does it, uh, how do we think of these regimes that are using violence, torture, suspension of parliamentary rights, etc., to secure the conditions for the reproduction of a dependent relationship to uh, imperialism and to and, and to American imperialism, interestingly enough, in a way that already in the 70s, so whilst these are still dictatorships, uh, the most lucid analysts say, well, all of what's interesting about these is that, you know, there are fascist methods, etc. But their aim is simply to, in some sense, they explicitly say, right, like their aim is simply to transition back to so-called democracy, basically, after all forces of resistance have been wiped out right this is like it's it's just a path to return to to parliamentary democracy after the politicide right and and after the full destruction of the workers movement and you know making like yeah making the making 
the world safe for democracy, for a safe democracy, right? Uh, a controlled, democracia uh, tutelada, uh, right? As they call it, like a kind of, you know, managed or a uh, uh, kind of kind of democracy. I right? lived and in so Bolivia when they tried to do that in 2008. Right. Okay, okay. So I, I so th those are the, so in that context, right? In those discussions, um, I think there's a way of gaining both um, a certain lucidity about the why and wherefore of fashion, but also a sense of the of the flexibility, right? So in the, in the Latin American context, one of the things that all of these analysts point out is that it's both not necessary, but also not possible and also not attractive to engage in the mass mobilization of um, the petty bourgeoisie or lower middle classes, not least because at the level of where Chile or Argentina, et cetera, sit, and at the level of their own internal economy, there's nothing to give these classes, right? Like you're not, you know, you can't, there's no social demagogy because that's neither your purpose nor, nor do you want to elicit, um, elicit kind of needs or demands that would remain unmet, right? And, 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 you know, and there, you know, that means that for some, the, the, the fascistic character of the method or the understanding of the fascism is above all about this violent implantation of capitalist relations. For some, that means that you still call it fascist. For others who stick more to classical Marxist debates, the absence of a real focus on mass mobilization or mass movement uh, will uh, make those, uh, you know, makes those movements not fit a definition of fascism, right? Um, and, you know, you have uh, an analog of sorts of that discussion taking place on the U.S. far left, if I think of some of the writings of people around the Sojourner Truth Organization, uh, Don Hammerquist, uh, um, Noel Ignatiev, etc., who question... Um, the validity of the discussion of fascism in, in, in a sense, because as they put it, you know, given the histories of um, white supremacy and the form and the class and race formations, you know, from the destruction of black reconstruction onwards, uh, it's surplus requirements, right? Like there, there's, there's all sorts of means of enlisting racially encoded masses and of uh, violently enforcing capitalist relations that don't require the the existence of mass movements with any kind of autonomy, et cetera. And they say, well, yes, of course you do have, you know, but the reason why those movements remain minoritarian in the States is because again, they're not, they're ultimately not fulfilling a useful function uh, for, um, you know, for this regime of accumulation, right? Um, so, and, and 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 so that's you know that's the kind of the 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 macro level question which is i think especially the reason why i think the latin american debate is very significant this debate on you know dependent fascism or military fascism etc is because it does really put to go back to what you were mentioning at the very start it does really put these uh uh political uh phenomena and transformations in the context right of global conjunctures of imperialism, economic stagnation, et cetera, right? And I think that's 
you know, and, and that again, by way of, of self criticism is something that I think is, is probably because I'm dealing it, dealing with it more at the level of, of theories and, 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 and discourses and ideology, I suppose is like one of the, one of the areas that I'd, I'd like to, you know, develop more kind of in the, in the wake of the book, because I do think it's extremely significant. And one of the curious things about reading those Latin American debates of the 70s is that in some sense, and I guess this would be the sort of maybe like the kind of provocative hypothesis, is that I would say that now all fascism, all, all processes of fascization, or all tendencies to fascism, or all potential fascisms are of the dependent form, right? Like, in, in the sense that even or especially in the US, like, if you look at the kind of the phenomenology of it, actually, in many ways, it it uh, resembles much more aspects of what those analysts are engaged are, are studying in the 70s, rather than um, these uh, uh, false analogies, right, with a sort of 30s fascism that really occupied the liberal imagination in the United States, right. Mm -hmm. And then this takes us to mm -hmm. also the question of what I feel is the political purchase, right, of engaging in this potentially seemingly scholastic debate about fascism is that I think this conceit of uh, the analogical conceit uh, is uh, driven and informed by the desire to recover the false image or the fantasy of a liberal anti-fascism that never was right so that one of the things that i think is really disturbing and disorienting about our moment is that a lot of the polit public political discourse including when and especially when it brings up the notion of fascism is this kind of pantomime play between like the fascism that we'd like to think existed and the liberalism that we'd like to think or that they would like to think responded to and defeated it right and i think that is deeply um damaging including with and this is of course happening in this particularly supercharged and overdetermined moment in the us including all of these calls that you know because there is a fascist threat and the fascist threat mm -hmm. is by definition the worst threat that you could encounter in a political scenario then you know we'll just have to bracket you know, imperialist support for a genocidal war, because it would kind of get in the way of the primary contradiction, uh, which is uh, forestalling, you know, the the rise of, of fascism in the United States, right, as though these things were not uh, interconnected, or, you know, or even at the or even at the internal level, right, like, we need to propose the most uh repressive militarized and ultimately xenophobic border policy in order to prevent right the rise of xenophobic fascism right and so that whole logic uh i think is you know unless one you know fundamentally um damages uh, undoes or responds to that way of thinking then like i can't see any space for organizing like anything else right i can't think of a space for even thinking about what uh, a political 
proposal or hypothesis for emancipation would look like if we're still somehow in a horizon defined on those terms, right? Mm. And I think it's those terms that are so damaging, right? And 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 in a way, that very image of fascism is deeply noxious also because it um removes the possibility of thinking of processes of fascization also happening at at different scales right including the interpersonal including uh you know at the level of uh you know social reproduction right policing and and and, and health and the management of everyday life right instead it's reduced to the question of you know who occupies right who occupies the visible <laughs> seats of power or sovereignty right and that's what so much of it has been reduced to um thus bracketing both the so to speak everyday life of fashion but also and you know that to me was one of the lessons of those um debates between you know, imprisoned black liberation intellectuals in the late 60s, early 70s, and and in all sorts of other contexts as well of thinking, well, what are the forms of um, racial terror, for instance, or or class despotism that exist in perfect compatibility, right, with the visible liberal order or some? Yeah, I think you bring up an interesting point by stressing the Latin America question. And I think for me, that's part of what gave me pause in what, in our initial discussion of the Sakai essay, which is in response to the Hamerquist, um, mm -hmm. Hamerquist essay, which you mentioned, mm -hmm. Tim, what gave me pause is that I had extensive experience with Latin America. So I learned about, you know, the dirty war and this, these things. And it sounds like Dimitrov's line. So mm -hmm. if, and it's like, mm -hmm. they're more like it than mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. want to give credit to it. And it's like, all right, there's something going on here. Like th there are situations where liberal democratic rule is intentionally suspended by capitalist forces mm -hmm. in order, like that happened. So, mm -hmm. um, and even with this question, you know, I, Tyler knows about my obsession with the drug stuff, right? Like I went to Seattle in 2021 and I saw the the like scale of damage there that fentanyl and like just drugs in general were doing and I was like, "Oh, oh, fascism as a in a the way that we use the term could emerge here." Like you would think that mm -hmm. Seattle's safe. I was like, mm -hmm. "Not like this. This is massively this is really delegitimizing and there could be a call for mass hardened insurgent forces to clean up the streets and did mm -hmm, all of these mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. that that happen that go into that process are definitely viable but to go to your point um there were death squads in latin america it's specifically mexico after the revolution that were cultivated by the u.s and those people in turn became the the drug traffickers so mm -hmm, like the ones mm -hmm. that really the cartels whatever a lot mm -hmm, of them mm -hmm. <laughs> are the death squads sent to mm -hmm. kill peasants in the mm -hmm. countryside mm -hmm. and then enslave them in drug export production facilities. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's uh, and then we want to act like, oh, the Mexicans are just crazy. And <laughs> because that's what Mexicans do, they're drug addled. And it's it's like, 
those connections aren't being drawn. And it's and because of that amnesia, as we've talked about, it's creating a context for people to provide these racialist, these um, very violent authoritarian responses to quote unquote crisis without um, actually having to deal with the fact that their fantasy of the past, as you've put it, was itself the crisis, you know, was the was the constitutive element. Yeah, I have one or two other questions along similar lines. Uh, I'm curious about this. Uh, the If you think about um, fascism from a capitalist perspective as like the right wing of the possible, mm-hmm. like the revolution without a revolution, mm-hmm. you can, uh, it's tempting for reasons of symmetry <laughs> to see uh, social democracy as the left wing of the possible, mm. um, which is also a way of saving capitalism from capitalism. I'm curious about, you know, since at least 2016, there's been in the US a kind of insurgent, and before that, there's been these insurgent left movements, um, Syriza trying to take power, trying to um, steer a social democratic course. Mm. And I wonder about those options. Are they like if fascism and processes of fascization is like a live possibility in this moment in part because we're in a moment of crisis Mm. is that also what's enabling at least the specter of a possible social democracy to fill in that Mm. and respond and save capitalism from itself and it's i'm i'm wondering about how we orient ourselves towards Mm. what appears to be the more progressive orientation towards saving capitalism from itself when there are these kind of um, Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, people who have a progressive view and structurally would seem to be engaging in a politics which will inevitably reproduce the crisis Mm. in the long term. Mm. Yeah, that's a a complex uh, question. I think... To an extent, the fortunes of the far right, globally speaking, are also an effect of the setbacks and defeats of those um, symbolically radical and materially moderate um, movements. Um you mentioned, yeah, Syriza, Sanders, Corbyn, but you know, we can also think of um, the extreme um, backlash against uh, the uh, left government in Chile that now seems like it could give rise to another very far right government with uh, uh, Cast's uh, party. We can think of, you know, Argentina and so on. Um, I and the question of the possible is is really interesting here, right? Because of course, if you take a uh, bleaker but perhaps more sober Marxist analysis of contemporary political economy and the limits, right, to productivity, the limits to redistribution, and so on and so forth. The weakness of social democracy is not just a political weakness, though it's also that, or a weakness of imagination, 
or weakness of organization. It is that for sure. It is not just a testament to the strength of the forces arrayed against it from credit rating agencies and European bureaucrats to multinational corporations or what have you, but it's also a uh, reflection of, um, of, of the limits of capital itself, as well as of a very different sociology, right, of what the national and global working classes look like. And in some sense, the strength of contemporary far-right movements is that as the the extreme right of the possible, so to speak, is that they're also operating entirely within, and actually in some sense, often explicitly within those bounds, right? So they're not promising, ultimately, redistribution, except through processes of racially encoded or nationalist exclusion of others from the you know shrinking pie, so to speak. Um, they're not promising a, a restructuring of, of society. In fact, they are in, in some way deeply conservative in the sense of, of accepting the parameters of the status quo, except for, of course, the stigmatization and, 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 and violent exclusion of all those others who are, you know, limiting our resources, stealing our enjoyment, or, you know, uh, waiting at the borders to invade or what have you, right? But those are not, those are all uh, very negative imaginations of, mm -hmm. of, of threats to entitlements or to resources that are perceived entirely, I think, within the, the bounds of what is possible, right? Which is also why in the end, none of these parties or movements or figures are really promising very much right like they're they're definitely inflating the psychological wages of nationalism and racial entitlement or what have you but they're not um there's not like a you know utopian dimension other than the the reactionary conservative utopia of your miserable lot but you know without the others around right <laughs> or you know so i think and so the the historical the temporal and kind of historical imaginary of, I guess, what I've called late fascism is is probably very, you know, can probably very be correlated quite closely to um, friend Jason Smith in his book on automation, you know, following a, a whole set of other uh, critical Marxian thinkers refers to as the age of stagnation, right? And I think that, you know, and that's something that I think probably is is worth developing to some extent in the analysis of the contemporary far right, that this is not a, to use Ruthie Gilmore's formulation, right, a saving capitalism from capitalism um, in a in a crisis that has that kind of temporal urgency necessarily, right? It's in, it's in a sense a, a process of fascization in in a long, in a very protracted crisis that we're still in, right? Like we're still in the 2007 eight, you know, that, that has not ended. I mean, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of, you know, band-aids and surfaces, but if you're, you know, and, and if you, and if you conjoin with that uh, underlying economic stagnation, that um, those blockages to 
to growth and uh, and redistribution. Uh, if you join that with, of course, the, uh, the in increasing uh, impact and, and horizon of of extreme cl uh, climate breakdown or acceleration of, of of these climate phenomena, then you have you do have both at the material level, but I think also at the kind of subjective level, right? A horizon that lends itself to to the antagonistic pessimism, so to speak. That is one of the leitmotifs of fascist movements, right? And that is also one of their strengths, right? And that allows them to flourish in moments where uh, progressivism in its literal sense is uh, not a particularly plausible proposition, right? Because what is what what is it to be a progressive in a situation where the material right. um parameters right of growth or the material horizon of a future that was better than the past is just not available right <laughs> like so and, you know and i think you know of course there's been all sorts of critical uh, uh thinkers uh you know from walter benjamin onwards that you know have seen the left as being you know needing to pivot away from the empty time of social democratic progressivism to the emergency temporality of you know organizing communist pessimism but that's a very that's a fairly marginal proposition and i think one of the things that's that's striking still about that like neo-social democratic imaginary was uh, a sense right of of progress that probably doesn't resonate right with like the material dimension of course it has this other you know this other aspect which is what gives it also it's in a way, it's kind of immediate plausibility, which is the, you know, eye-watering levels of inequality and the radical asymmetries of social power that that we see, right? With the absolutely, you know, grotesque figures of the Musks and Bezos and et cetera, right? So there is a prima facie kind of obvious element to, you know, some project of of mass expropriation, it would seem to be like, yes, why not, right? Uh, you know, expropriate the billionaires and uh, socialize what are now utilities. Uh, and, and I think that's still, you know, I, I think that's definitely a transitional program I could, I could get with, so to speak. But I think, it, yeah, so I think that's one of the things that is is um, is a challenge to 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 think with so to to and and i myself don't have any um straightforward judgment or any uh, about the extent to which the programmatic and, and 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 political weaknesses of these you know left projects in the past 20 years um uh are you know how much that is Part of the problem and how much there's a kind mm -hmm. of you know the 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 ultra left value theoretical version of this would be like yeah of course they're impossible like there's nothing you know like that redistributive project is just anachronistic right and uh and ultimately in this age of stagnation not uh, a, a proposal worth entertaining i'm not entirely sure of that myself of course because as many times as we declare that capitalism is dead mm -hmm. it uh it somehow 
finds mm -hmm. a new way to organize yeah. accumulation. But I do think, even though I don't really argue it in the book, except maybe in passing, I, I do think that w among the possible, right, among the possible definitions of what something like like fascism would be, would be, yeah, a, a, a fascism for an age of stagnation rather than mm -hmm. um, uh, rather than a, a, a fascism for the you know world crisis of a of a capitalism that still had you know the material potential for for massive growth and the you know industrial capacities to go with it yeah i mean even among those who see the the u.s is entering a period of terminal decline and china on the rise you know that process of empire falling is a slow process the fall of rome is not like a mm -hmm thing that happens in any one person's lifetime it's, it's oh, yeah. like a, it's a generational change mm -hmm. and so it does seem important to be theorizing a slow fascism for this mm -hmm. moment of perpetual decline mm -hmm. and all of the kinds of strange myths of rebirth that will start to emerge and that are already emerging mm. i guess one last question here before we go we've been talking a little bit about the kind of economic context but your book is really about ideology and culture and that terrain of of struggle and i'm always curious how marxists approach culture and navigating this you know okay so for example we uh, read not long ago um yanis varifakis's new book on techno feudalism mm -hmm. and in the conclusion he's got kind of a throwaway line like you know people are wasting their time uh debating about what is a woman you know when like the real stuff is this shift in economic structure, right? So like, how do you respond to, because that's a very common and tempting and, and sometimes persuasive maneuver rhetorically, which says you can disregard these kinds of cultural struggles. And, you know, there's also an extent to which it seems like fascism is responding to like pseudo crises or pseudo events. So how do we how do you start to disentangle those things and say, you know, why should we pay attention to, to take that example, the struggle over what it means to be a woman? Um, well, we should pay attention to it, I suppose, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, one is out of, uh, solidarity with people who are engaging in, uh, uh, in what I think are fairly clearly struggles for for liberation of various sorts from from all kinds of ingrained uh, hierarchies and systems of repression and exclusion, etc. We should also pay attention to it because it seems to be a remarkable and very um, pervasive and very damaging obsession of uh not just far right but actually you know that the the question of um of transphobia of the fight against so-called gender ideologies i talk about in the last chapter of the book um functions as a sort of token for circulating in a far-flung a materially significant network right like so this is the other aspect of it like this is um, I think while the, the the forms of fascistic ideologies that we're encountering the present, as I think I talk about, um, seem to 
seem to have such a superstructural uh, excess in part because of what we were just mentioning, their um, unwillingness or indeed their 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 uh, lack of uh, intention to to do anything about fundamental social relations. Um, and uh, at the same time, um, you know, the the superstructure, ideology, culture are, you know, very material things that involve their own um, political economies, their own employment structures, their own funding structure, their own international foundations that pay for all of these uh, right-wing agitators and intellectuals and uh, so on to to fly from, you know, Budapest to Tallahassee or whatever. And I think that is very, you know, it's not insignificant and it's not random, right? Um, that there's been a, that there's been a particular um, uh, focus um on issues that whilst they on on one level you could say well they they affect or concern and in very small proportion of the population etc and 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 are you know fun, even you know and and are these kind of fantastical fabrications and and, and obsessions at the same time uh, they allow for the circulation of all sorts of other aspects of these far right discourses um in a in an international kind of um sphere of institutes foundations campaigning and they create a kind of mutual translatability right um between the far right in brazil and in florida and in hungary and in italy and so on and so forth right so we have these very concrete entities which themselves are linked you know if you so to speak follow the money you know you mm -hmm. you you end up at at um you know institutes and foundations are either bankrolled by governments as in the case of hungary or you know very significant and powerful foundations that are also have a shaping influence on the political um panorama more broadly so you know there's a there's a political economy of and a funding structure of the culture wars and a way in which they also serve to circulate and cohere um, class struggles as well, which I think needs to be attended to. And so I think that um, separation, right, between, okay, well, you have these fundamental reconfigurations of capitalism happening, and then, you know, you have... Um, uh, uh, papers and conferences and, and and people entirely concerned with you know fantastical conspiracy theories about critical race theory or you know um uh, or trans kids playing sports or whatever right so in one sense yes you can say okay well this is like an obscene diversion and and, and etc but um i think to to uh, think, oh, this is not a terrain of struggle would be wrong on, on both the level of the political solidarity with, you know, people and, 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 and movements for their freedom and emancipation and so on. But I think it's also like, 
would be to strategically to, to misunderstand like the strategies through which the far right gains its its uh, force and its uh, uh, um, consistency, um, including at the economic level, right? Like so, th these are not. I, I think so. I think that that model whereby we would have like a an economic um, impact of the far right, and then this just kind of surface show doesn't do justice to the way in which these two things are very much articulated in the ideological and institutional and, 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 and material life of the of the far right and and what allows it mm -hmm. to operate as an increasingly coordinated and international force right yeah and I think these cultural struggles they speak to people on a very intuitive direct mm -hmm. level mm -hmm. of who you see yourself as who you want to be what you're capable of doing what what and how and where can you intervene i think i found it very interesting the way you described this struggle over gender as being um, in a, a re-entrenchment mm -hmm. of these existing divisions and hierarchies but then also a transformation of the type of femininity which appears in January 6th, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, for example, mm -hmm. as new kinds of possibilities because there's this element of like the apparent liberation that fascism wants to offer of like, I can be her breaking mm -hmm. through the wind. Mm -hmm, like that's, mm -hmm. that's. Yeah. And I think there's a further element to it, which, you know, maybe just to, to, to finish off, which I think is maybe worth reflecting on some more is that if you think of, the operative discourse of much of the contemporary far right as it involves questions of culture and lifestyle and, and sexuality and everyday life etc it often is channeled as this kind of anti-state animus right because it's presented as though and that's the kind of conspiratorial narrative right that the defeated left of the 1920s right like lukash and gramsci and then the frankfurt school you know like slowly seeded themselves into you know all of the institutions of american life uh, after you know exile and whatever partly through the mediation of black power and civil rights movements you know and eventually now have made it in this kind of hundred year conspiratorial saga you know from the failed hungarian councils now they you know run the di departments of the army right like this this is a kind of but you know more or less what is said in a number of very best-selling books right like mm -hmm. uh, you know levin's american marxism with its um right with its attacks on the franklin school of berlin and you know all of that <laughs> uh i think a million copies i think it's sold so there we are but i think what's what's important about that right and especially important in the united states given the anti-state also common sense that animates much of the you know and, and the anti-federal state of course right like so then Mm -hmm. So that's why we also see this curious phenomenon of an anti-federal state discourse vis-a-vis questions of curricula, et cetera, et cetera, which then flips into turning Florida into Hungary, right? And 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 into this extremely like institutionally repressive, you know, banning books, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But those two things are kind of compatible in part because of the fact that um liberation 
movements are experienced through the mediation of of administrative state and and you know like university bureaucracies right and and that's been very effective i think going back to how do you mobilize if not masses at least atomized electorates it's been very successful in presenting this reaction against uh, forms of, you know, liberation, minority difference, et cetera, et cetera, as anti-statism, right? As, as against the elites, right? And that, I think, is a key plank, right? I mean, especially in the United States, but also elsewhere, of presenting, and that's the demagogic populist dimension, is that basically it's like, there's a pact between, you know, the elite and and the others, right? Mm -hmm. Which is unsettling the, the the status quo and creating these kind of crises, not just at the level of the economy, but at the level of everyday life, right? So I think that move to me is really crucial, right? And is what then leads to these bizarre ironies that, of course, these phenomena, which much of the radical and liberatory left has criticized right like the ways you know the kind of the elite capture of liberatory energies into like liberal administration of difference you know from universities to mm -hmm. you know is presented instead as like the marxist trojan horse right yeah <laughs> but i think that whole move is really is really um yeah key and and, and worth addressing and dismantling yeah that's a really interesting point about how the the state capture of liberation movements um certainly post 60s um kind of identity based liberation movements uh in particular have been really a victim of state capture and how the right has been able to mobilize against that uh, really effectively and and drawing on an anti-state animus as you say to do so um we've only just scratched the surface of what is in uh, in your book uh, but we are running out of time here uh, thanks so much for joining us today well thank you Tyler and thanks Rob you have, to, you have to head off it's been a great discussion yeah I really enjoyed it If you like what we're doing here at Life After Empire, please consider becoming a subscriber at our Substack page. You can follow our podcast at Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and wherever you're connecting with us, please remember to like, rate, and comment. We want to hear from you, and it's the easiest way to support the work that we do. Thank you. <laughs>